reached My Fellow Layman with Lena Ajabani, a show for the uninitiated layman hosted by a fellow layman. I cover stories making headlines, I provide context from scratch, and of course, I do it all in layman's terms. Welcome to episode six, Sudan, Break the Wheel. This is my second Sudan episode, and it will pick up where my first Sudan episode left off. To refresh your memory or to catch you up to speed, my first Sudan episode, Sudan, an Empirical Game of Thrones, was released just five days before what is now going to go down in Sudan's history as one of the most violent massacres to have taken place. At the end of my first episode, I had said that I hoped the revolution would have a better ending than the Game of Thrones season finale. I was referring to the discontent many fans had at the time with the general plot, myself included. I wasn't referring, however, to the fire and fury part of the show. Little did I know, in real life, something horrendous was about to shake the revolution to its core. The silver lining, however, is that the revolution did not end following that massacre. It kicked back up again and is in the process of breaking the wheel of corruption. On today's episode, we'll cover the June 3rd massacre in detail and its aftermath. Sudan's new government has been slowly coming together, so we'll look into that, and I also want to discuss the impact this revolution has had on Sudan socially and economically. In fact, at the beginning of this month, the now new Prime Minister of Sudan was here in Paris at the invite of French President Emmanuel Macron. So we'll cover that and many other important developments concerning Saudi Arabia, concerning the rebels, and I even have a few musical features queued up for you. Now, if you haven't tuned into my first Sudan episode, I strongly recommend that you pause this right now and go listen to Sudan, an empirical Game of Thrones. You'll get a full understanding of Sudan's origins, dating all the way back to the Nubian kingdom. We cover Sudan's relationship with ancient Egypt, building up to the construction of the Kingdom of Kush, and all the way to the Mahdiya Empire. We discuss religion, British occupation, Sudanese independence, and we go through the various Sudanese parties and rulers, from Sudan's first elected head of state all the way to the Numeidi administration. Finally, I explain the now-ousted President al-Bashir's rise and fall and everything in between from Sudan's civil war to the Darfur genocide to the North and South Sudan divide. All this in under 30 minutes. So you want to listen or even re-listen so that you can truly appreciate the unfolding events. Now let's continue where we last left off. When Omar al-Bashir was ousted by the army which he ruled for 30 years, following months of nationwide protests, and a transitional military council, aka the TMC, took over, the people of Sudan persisted to demand for civilian rule, peacefully protesting and celebrating at the same time. It was a wonderful time to be alive in Sudan because people were full of hope. Even the Sudanese army would partake in these festivities. On the other side of the coin, however, the Rapid Support Force, aka the RSF, which is a paramilitary group under the command of the TMC, was preparing for an all-out attack. This militia is mainly made up of former Janjaweed soldiers who committed the genocide atrocities in Darfur. To give you an idea of their nature, the name Janjaweed means devils on horseback. It was late May, early June, 
and the Transitional Military Council was in heated talks with the Declaration of Freedom and Change movement, the umbrella group for the opposition coalition who started the revolution in the first place and persist until today. The Transitional Military Council and the opposition coalition butted heads over how to build a new transitional government. The situation was tense. You see, although the two sides eventually agreed to share power for a transitional period of three years before democratic elections could take place, the TMC was reluctant to relinquish power and disliked that the opposition coalition had a lot of leverage in the power-sharing discussions because the entire country backed the revolution tremendously. This incident, therefore, on June 3rd, cannot be described as anything less than a massacre aimed to silence the people and put an end once and for all to the revolution. Brave Sudanese witnesses and victims, however, recorded the unfolding events on their mobile phones that day and even live-streamed the ongoing developments to certain news outlets abroad. So while the footage is deeply disturbing, it's all there for you to see for yourselves. I personally urge you, as a fellow human being, to watch these videos. I'm placing a link in the show notes. You see, in listening to my show, you can get the facts and come to understand what went down. But if you watch what the Sudanese people went through and recorded firsthand, you put yourself in their shoes for two seconds. And you will not just understand, but you will feel. It was the final day of the holy month of Ramadan. And protesters in Khartoum... Sudan's capital, were gathered at a sit-in just outside the military headquarters, which at this point had become the id spot to gather in peaceful protest for freedom and democracy. It was a place where protesters took to chanting, singing, dancing even. At 5 a.m. that day, it began. As gunshots started shooting at the crowds, the protesters dispersed and started fleeing for their lives. Those who were found outnumbered by the rapid support force, so basically the Janjaweed, were filmed being savagely beaten with sticks by these soldiers and shot in cold blood. You can see footage of soldiers stepping on the faces and necks of protesters as they lay helpless and injured on the ground, unable to escape. Those who tried to escape into the military headquarters found the gates locked and understood that even the regular army officers who had once celebrated amongst them were ordered to stand down and had now left protesters at the mercy of the rapid support force. The RSF spared no one. Women, children, even doctors attending to the wounded in makeshift clinics at the sit-in area were shot. And eventually doctors attending to the wounded on hospital grounds were targeted and killed. On the following day, Dead bodies started to emerge from the River Nile, some even found with bricks tied to their feet. It is estimated that 128 people were killed on that day. Now, at the head of the Rapid Support Force, you have Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, more commonly known as Hamiti. He's second in charge of the Transitional Military Council and founder and commander of the Janjaweed, later reincarnated as the Rapid Support Force under his command. Abdul Fattah al-Burhan is head of the Transitional Military Council, but in reality, Hamiti is thought to run the show, and he staunchly denied any involvement in the killings, blaming rogue factions and imposters wearing RSF uniforms he claims can be purchased in the marketplace. As the world watched in horror, Western powers condemned the attack, 
including the U.S. Embassy to Sudan, the European Union, and the Foreign British Secretary. The U.N. Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, called for an independent investigation, and at the request of the U.K. and Germany, a closed-door meeting was to be held at the U.N. Security Council. It should be noted, however, that condemnation can only go so far, but it would take action to actually make a difference in this whole ordeal. For instance, if there was a movement to increase sanctions on Khartoum, this could easily be blocked by Russia or China, who never support intervention when it comes to civil rights versus sovereign rule. Then you have regional powers with influence on the Sudanese military, like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, or the United Arab Emirates. But these powers are not likely to intervene either, unless coerced by Western allies like the U.S. or France, which, at least publicly, was not the case. You see, stability in Sudan is in the interest of Saudi Arabia. Saudi won't impose sanctions on the Transitional Military Council, as the TMC is committed to sending Sudanese troops to help the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen, a war which started back in March 2015. But Saudi Arabia did release a statement stating that it is concerned with the developments in the region and urged the TMC and the opposition coalition to engage in dialogue. So in truth, the people of Sudan stood alone. It was their bravery and determination versus 30 years of a corrupt regime. Did you enjoy that music bite? I'll talk about it in a bit. But first, the Transitional Military Council proceeded to announce that they would be scrapping all agreements reached with the opposition coalition and that they would hold snap elections within nine months. Now, the reason the opposition coalition demanded that the transitional period span over three to four years is because the political network is so corrupt and therefore needs time to get dismantled to actually allow for legitimate elections, as well as time needed for the settlement of refugees and devastated populations in civil war zones. They ought to also be able to participate in the vote. Now, the opposition coalition announced that they would cut all contact with the Transitional Military Council. And the Sudanese Professionals Association, which is under the umbrella of the opposition coalition and is the representative of the revolution, called for a total civil disobedience in the form of a general strike. Now, another big outcome from this revolution is the media trends. One specific trend is a hashtag which went viral called Blue for Sudan. And it all started when a protester, Mohammed Matar, 26 years old, was killed on June 3rd. As a gesture of remembering him, his close friends changed their social media profile picture to the color blue, which was the same color he had on his profile 
at the time, and which was his favorite color. The trend grew, and suddenly celebrities the likes of Rihanna and Naomi Campbell were raising awareness about the situation in Sudan. Even when the TMC gave in and put negotiations back on the table, the Sudanese Professionals Association refused, citing that the TMC could no longer be trusted following the massacre. As for the rebel population, they were scared, traumatized, and suffering from personal losses and injuries. They were also intimidated by the rapid support force roaming the neighborhoods inciting fear. Following, the African Union decided to suspend Sudan's membership until a civilian-led transitional authority was put in place. Now, what is the African Union and what does this suspension mean? Well, it was founded back in 2002. So it's a relatively new body when you compare it to the European Union, for example. Its aim is to unify its 55 member African states, to coordinate amongst them for future developments, and to protect the sovereignty and integrity of these member states, in particular, barring military takeovers. Now, while the union has no court of justice yet, which can sanction a member state, suspending Sudan delegitimizes the transitional military council. And while that might not mean much to the TMC, because they operate more or less like mercenaries, it was still a necessary step in the favor of democracy. Next, African Union delegates and the Ethiopian Prime Minister had gone to Khartoum to try and mediate between the Transitional Military Council and the Opposition Coalition to restart talks, but these efforts were not taken seriously. In fact, immediately following this trip, three members of the Opposition Coalition, who were at the time exiled but had returned, were arrested. The Transitional Military Council is not your average negotiating party. They play dirty and the Rapid Support Force faction even more so, with reports of rape victims, urination on civilians, and death threats. Leading up to the nationwide strike, you even had bank, airport, and electricity workers held at gunpoint and forced to go back to work. Some even shot on the spot when they refused. And so the general strikes commenced, and the majority of people abided by the instructions of the Sudanese Professionals Association, a few days after, and following a second intervention from the Ethiopian prime minister, the two sides agreed to go back to the negotiation table. The Transitional Military Council agreed to release political prisoners, and the Sudanese Professionals Association instructed people to return to their work posts. Another trend is a musical one. During the sit-in, like I mentioned earlier, protesters took to singing and dancing, but after June 3rd, in a similar way to Mohammed Matar's friends starting the Blue for Sudan hashtag as a coping mechanism for their pain, Sudanese artists began to also express their grief in the form of music. During that last intermission, I played a clip from a song written by a Sudanese artist named Ahmed Amin called Civil Freedom and Peace. And I'll add a link to the show notes. The melody is beautiful, but the words are quite touching. And if you don't speak Arabic, you'll find the English subtitles on the YouTube clip. Another form of art used is graffiti. Graffiti artists have been honoring the victims of June 3rd. One specific artist, Asil Diab, undertook a project where murals of the victims were created on the walls of their family homes to memorialize the fallen and as a gesture of compassion for the loved ones they left behind. 
She created 30 portraits at great risk to her life, even flying to Sudan in the first place and surviving run-ins with the RSF and an arrest. You can find her on Instagram at Sudalove, S-U-D-A-L-O-V-E. Now, this type of spreading of awareness and expression of grief and acts of solidarity was all made possible thanks to the Internet. And that's why the Internet was targeted by the TMC and why Sudan was eventually victim to an Internet blackout. Even though this lost the country a lot of money due to businesses not being able to function, protesters could no longer meet at the sit-in, which was reduced to ashes. And so they had to revert to phone calls and text messages in order to pass on information, some even using their foreign Internet accounts at very high costs. So, yes, the protesters were cut off, but they were not silenced because they bravely continued to gather in small groups and form neighborhood committees for medical assistance and food provisions. Eventually, word of mouth spread leading up to June 30th, less than a month since the June 3rd massacre, where protesters would show up in an even bigger number than the protests back in April, which led to the ousting of the former president. Now, With this demonstration, they were not just demanding for civilian rule, but also for justice for the martyrs of June 3rd. They would not die in vain. They were chanting freedom, peace, and justice, and the demonstrations were not just in the capital city of Khartoum, but all over Sudan. It seemed as though the entire country was mobilized, with reports of two million protesters out in the streets. It was also an opportunity to celebrate Eid, which the Sudanese people never got to celebrate because on the eve of Eid, the June 3rd massacre took place. In addition, families of martyrs marched holding up pictures of those they lost. It's also a symbolic date, being the anniversary of the military coup 30 years ago, which brought al-Bashir to power. Now, unfortunately, there were about seven deaths that day and hundreds injured, but the casualties could have been a lot bigger The regime was forced to restrain themselves this time due to international pressure and the somewhat intervention of the United States and Saudi Arabia. The momentum of the protesters was back on, and awareness continued to spread all around the world. Actually, a beautiful song was written by Wycliffe Jean to honor the Sudanese revolution, and I'll play this at the next intermission. Finally, on July 5th, a deal between the Transitional Military Council and the Opposition Coalition was struck and announced at a joint press conference. What was agreed upon was a sovereign council, which is to be the top governing body of the next transitional three years, consisting of five military members and six civilian members. Chairmanship is to be on a rotational system, where the military component would occupy the chairmanship for the first 21 months and then the civilian for the remaining 18. They also agreed that the government is to be formed of independent technocrats and that the violence which took place would have to be investigated. Now, although the deal had yet to be signed and details had yet to be agreed upon, celebrations erupted in the streets. Reaching a deal was a fruit of the efforts and sacrifices by the protesters. The signing of the deal, however, came later in a ceremony on July 17th. And here they agreed that, with the exception of the defense and interior ministers, the cabinet would be civilian, including the prime minister. 
love that song. And yes, I'll add a link on the show notes. Now, not everything went smooth sailing. Some killings persisted for a while, this time involving school children in the Kordofan region protesting for better living conditions. This sparked more public outrage. Then there was an investigation which held only nine military personnel responsible for the June 3rd massacre, which was ridiculed by the people who demanded independent investigations. By August 3rd, the military and the opposition came to an agreement on a constitutional declaration. It was signed by General Hamidzi on the military end and by the opposition leader Ahmed Rabi on the civilian end. They agreed on the following levels of authority a joint military and civilian sovereign council, a legislative body, and a cabinet which the civilian prime minister would head. Now, interestingly, the Sudanese Professionals Association, which spearheaded the revolution and drafted the Declaration of Freedom and Change in the first place, opted to only participate in the transitional parliament as an independent oversight authority, a watchdog, basically, but not members. And there's something so noble about that, They helped bring about the revolution, but not to govern themselves. They never sought power, and now they place themselves as guardians of the revolution. Finally, by August 22nd, Abdullah Hamdouk was appointed as Sudan's new prime minister. Now, let me give you a little background on him. He has a PhD in economics from the University of Manchester. Previously, he was the Deputy Executive Secretary of the UN Economic Commission for Africa from November 2011, and he was also nominated by al-Bashir as Finance Minister in 2018, but he declined the post. As Prime Minister, he says the government's top priorities are to stop the war, build sustainable peace, address the severe economic crisis, and build a balanced foreign policy. Now, What are the challenges Sudan faces moving forward? Well, as you know, the revolution started out because of the hardships of everyday life in Sudan. Economically speaking, Sudan's public debt is at 60% of the country's GDP. So inflation is very high and the cost of living is becoming too expensive. There are also fuel shortages hampering everyday life and businesses, and there are foreign exchange shortages. And this was especially the case after the North-South Divide, where Sudan lost most of its oil revenues to South Sudan. Now, on an international level, Sudan also suffers from sanctions placed during al-Bashir's regime. UN sanctions for human rights abuses and US sanctions for the state sponsor of terrorism. The latter was originally due to the fact that the al-Bashir regime harbored the late al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden between 1991 and 1996. So this is about 30 years ago. But being on that list has a financial effect because Sudan is banned from access to the dollar-based international financial system. Also on the agenda is corruption. Currently, the defense budget takes up well over half of government spending. Cutting that is going to be very challenging. Illegal foreign currency has already been found at the home of the former president. Then there's the matter of bringing all those implicated in human rights violations to justice, including those who are currently part of the government, some of whom are trying to push for immunity. Peace is another dossier. The wars in Darfur, South Kordofan, and Blue Nile have yet to be resolved. 
You have several rebel groups in Darfur, and you have the Sudan People's Liberation Army North in South Kordofan and Blue Nile, created way back since the North-South Civil War, when the non-Arab minorities collaborated with the South at the time to fight al-Bashir's government. Today, however, they feel left out still because they wanted representation in the Sovereign Council and the transitional government. The prime minister will have to start peace talks, and some say he himself, coming from the marginalized Kordofan region, gives him a good edge to speak to the rebels. Now, apart from political, a lot of important developments have been taking place socially and economically. So on a brighter note, one social outcome has been the formation of a women's football league. They played their first match at the Khartoum Stadium recently. During the reign of al-Bashir, such rights would never be extended to women because he used an Islamist regime. A national women's football team is a positive step in equality between men and women. After all, women played a huge role in this revolution and showed up in huge numbers during the demonstrations. In fact, Sudan will now have four ministers, two Supreme Council members, and one chief justice, not to mention other senior posts such as university chancellors all occupied by women, making Sudan's success the envy of the region. Next, Saudi Arabia comes into play. King Salman met with General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, head of the TMC, and the new prime minister, Abdullah Hamdouk. Saudi Arabia offered to set up investment projects and aid existing ones. And following, Saudi's foreign affairs ministry announced on Twitter that it is working on removing Sudan from the United States list of state sponsors of terrorism. Now, if Sudan can be removed from this list, it could be eligible for debt relief and for financing from the likes of the International Monetary Fund and World Bank. However, Hamdouk's vision is to build a sustainable, self-reliant business model for the country. But this can't be achieved under the current embargo, which bars companies and governments from doing business with Sudan. Another positive outcome was France's involvement. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, welcomed Sudan's new prime minister, Abdullah Hamdouk. And this was Hamdouk's first visit to Europe since his appointment. It resulted in a modest 16.3 million aid package and plans for a donors conference. Mr. Macron also facilitated talks between Prime Minister Hamdouk and Abdelwahid al-Nur, who lives in France and who is the leader of the Sudan Liberation Movement, one of the main Darfur rebel movements. Now, al-Nur doesn't recognize Hamdouk or the transitional government, but the talks reportedly lasted three hours and went really well. Recently, peace talks did take place in Juba, the capital of South Sudan, between Sudan's transitional governments and rebel groups from Darfur, the Nuba Mountains, and the Blue Nile region. These talks were sponsored by Salva Kiir, president of South Sudan, and the two sides signed a peace agreement to allow humanitarian aid into the regions isolated due to the fighting over the years. Abdelwahid al-Nur still refused to sign, and at this, I would like to give my final conclusion. People like Anur are idealists, and to be honest, form an obstacle to the already fragile coalition. And it goes both ways. Even the protesters had to bite on some lemons, but they need to do so for the greater good, for the future of Sudan. And Prime Minister Hamdouk is walking a fine line. So I wish him all the very best. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. 
I'm your host, Lina Ajabani, coming to you from Paris. If you've enjoyed today's episode, tell your friends about my show and help me spread the word. You can also find the show notes on the website, www.myfellowlayman.com, and you can follow the show's Instagram at myfellowlayman, layman spelled L-A-Y-M-E-N. And now I'll leave you with a Sudanese ballad by Muhammad Wardi. I hope you'll join me again next time for another episode of My Fellow Layman, available wherever you download your podcasts or on air in Paris on WRP. That's World Radio Paris. يزين بكرة كل الشام